Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather, and I can't believe that it's already episode 6. Seriously, where has the time gone? A lot of you have requested an entire episode dedicated to Chris's mistress, so I'm going to throw one together for you guys and spill the tea on the details of their relationship that weren't necessarily pertinent to the case, but were pretty freaking entertaining. (laughs) Unfortunately, I do have to give you guys a fair warning about today's episode. I know I said it would be a while before we had another rough one, but the details of this second confession are heart-wrenching, so proceed with caution. This case is just a tough one. As always, small talk sucks, so let's dive in. On February 18th of 2019 at 7.45 a.m., yes, literally this year and only six months after killing Shanann, Bella, Cece, and baby Nico, the original interrogators from Chris's polygraph interview visit Chris in jail to talk to him about the details of the murders and what really happened. They also ask him about a couple people who have claimed to have affairs with him in the past, his relationship with Kessinger, and some overall random facts, like the fact that he sleeps three hours a night, which is insane. Right off the bat, the interrogators ask him about a man in Wyoming who claimed to have had an affair with Chris after meeting him on the WhatsApp. Chris said that he'd never been to Wyoming and had never heard of the app, let alone the guy claiming to have had a romantic relationship with him. And he also notes that he's never had any gay experiences or interests in the past. Now, I had read about this in the case file, but the guy didn't seem to be a reliable source at all, so I decided not to include it. I genuinely don't think that this happened. There were actually a few instances where people claimed to have hooked up with Chris, only to later admit that they did not people are weird. Next, they ask him about a woman who said that they had met at Chick-fil-A and had a one-night stand. Chris says that he'd only ever been to one Chick-fil-A, and if he had just led with that from the beginning, we'd have known he's crazy because Chick-fil-A is amazing. Anyways, he said it wasn't the location that she had claimed to have met him at. This girl went into a super lot of graphic detail, so for this to be false, she would have had to have gone through a lot of trouble to make up a pretty detailed story I honestly believed her, but again, for no factual reason, so I decided not to mention it. Not important in the long run. Chris says that he met Kessinger on June 1st of 2018 at work, despite the fact that Kessinger had googled Shanann Watts in January of 2018, but whatever. He says that Kessinger knew he was married when they met. She had seen Shanann on his phone lock screen. Chris being Chris said some weird shit that he hopes that Kessinger hasn't written to him in jail under an alias that he doesn't recognize. That's a bold Chris Watts red flag. What kind of statement is this? Literally no one else would even consider this, but now literally everybody is. Excuse me while I go back and read through all of his jail mail. Chris says he felt like Kessinger pursued him, which was something he wasn't used to, but you'll remember, according to Kessinger, she was constantly telling him to work it out with Shanann. So, as always, their stories, cough, lies, cough, still suck. Chris said that Kessinger never asked him to do anything to his wife and daughters, but said that his relationship with her did, in fact, contribute to his decisions. 
She told him that she wished she could give him a son, and Chris says that she never knew Shanann was pregnant, but admits that she could have known through Facebook and just not mentioned anything to him. Uh-huh. Chris said that he deleted his Facebook account on August 8th because Kessinger told her friends about them, and he thought they'd search his Facebook and find out that his wife was pregnant. But Kessinger looked at his and Shanann's Facebooks regularly. She was well aware that his wife was pregnant, regardless of what either of them say. Chris said that Kessinger had a few meltdowns when she felt like Chris was putting Shanann first. This coming from a woman who said she was constantly telling him to try and fix his marriage. He tells the interrogators that Kessinger always wanted to have sex and specifically stated that he felt like he had a leash around him that she was able to use to tug him away from Shanann. That is a super visual description of an emotion. Chris continues by saying that Kessinger didn't like anyone coming over to her apartment, but she let him because her dog liked him and she felt like he belonged there. This seems like some weird backhanded emotional manipulation by her, but color it what it is. Chris explains that he used his debit card for the first time the night before he killed his family because he ran out of work gift cards and that he couldn't ask Kessinger to pay, which is bullshit. You can always ask Kessinger to pay, but he often used prepaid visa cards and easily could have done that like he had done many times before. All he had to do was go back on the visa website, load some money onto the card and go on with his life as normal, but he chose not to. Chris says that if it weren't for Kessinger, he would never have thought that there was anything wrong with his and Shanann's marriage. Chris admits now that contrary to what he said before and what Kessinger told police, he never felt belittled by Shanann. Remember, they mentioned that Shanann had been talking shit about Chris in front of the kids and they were starting to repeat it, but obviously now we know that isn't true at all. Chris says that he keeps photos of Shanann, Bella, and Cece on his cell wall, and he says he talks to the photos and reads the girls' books before he goes to bed every night, as well as Bible scriptures. Now, this has pissed a lot of people off. There's even a petition online to have the photos of his victims removed from his cell. Over 17,000 people have signed this petition, and the number literally climbs steadily if you pull the petition up online. When they ask Chris about his relationship with Shanann, the first thing he brings up is how he used to help her organize her meds in her pillbox, and that he went to a colonoscopy with her a few months into dating, and that's when Shanann told him that he was a keeper. Remember that Shanann had a bit of a reputation for being a hypochondriac, and it sounds like him taking care of her was one of the only ways he ever really felt needed or assertive in this relationship. The night before the murders, Chris says that Shanann got into bed around 2 a.m. and he felt her rustling around in the bed, and then she started rubbing his leg or his chest. Apparently, he can't differentiate the two, but whatever. Around 2.30 a.m., he says that they had sex. Yes, he had sex initiated by the woman he says suspected him of cheating on her, whom he would kill in just hours. Chris says that the sex made him question who he was and who he had become, and he says that the sex could have been the trigger to the proverbial bomb that just blew up. Chris says that Shanann fell asleep right after they had sex. 
He never mentions himself falling asleep in specific words like he did when he described Shanann, but he said he woke up later and got ready, then woke Shanann up to talk to her. He says Shanann was sleeping on her stomach and that she rolled over to talk to him. Let's pause here for a second. Shanann's card was declined at 2.30 a.m. that morning. That doesn't account for any of the time that she would have been online browsing, checking out, etc. Back to our regularly scheduled sleuthing. Chris said he had to say something to her, so he straddled her around her waist. Shanann just thinks he's trying to have sex again, but tells him that he's hurting the baby. Even still, he says he straddled her for another 15 to 20 more minutes as they talk. What man straddles a woman to talk? What man straddles a woman ever? What man do you know sits on a woman to have a discussion, and a pregnant one at that? Every female on the planet has probably done this, but ask the males you know if they've ever straddled a woman to have a chat with her. The answer will be no, but still, go ahead and ask. Chris says that he thought Shanann knew about the affair with Kessinger, and that she was either going to take the kids and leave, or that she was going to change the locks before he got home. I'll never understand why he thought this because at this point, the last interaction they had had with each other was having sex. He reacted to an imaginary situation. He had fears in his head, conjured up by his own guilt, and essentially punished her for what he thought she might do if she found out. Chris asked Shanann to cancel their restart trip to that resort in Aspen that they had scheduled for the upcoming weekend, and then he says he told her that he wanted to move to a cheaper area like Brighton. While Chris is sitting on top of her, Shanann asks about the debit card charge for him and Kessinger's date at the Lazy Dog, and Chris denies the affair altogether, and at this point he says he felt more guilty than he ever had before, but that didn't stop him from telling her that their marriage wasn't going to work out and that they just weren't compatible anymore. His favorite word, compatible. The guy who's freaking out that his wife is going to take his kids or change the locks while he's at work is gradually getting more and more cruel as their conversation goes on. He tells Shanann that he doesn't love her, and Shanann tells him that he's never going to see the kids again and told him to get off of her because he was still hurting the baby. He mentions that Shanann hadn't taken off her bra or her makeup before getting into bed, so her mascara was running down her face. He mentions mascara a lot of times, and there was mascara stains on the sheets, so I think he's telling the truth there, but adding that she didn't take her bra off was random and unnecessary and had nothing to do with one another. It sounds to me like it's been questioned why a woman who put pajamas on didn't take her bra off, and this is his one chance to slip in an answer before it became a question. It explained nothing, so again, Chris Watts is Chris Watts and makes people question things more. Chris said their argument that morning was different than any other day because there just wasn't any more love there. It started with emotion, but he says it turned into pure anger. He said he was angry and in a rage while Shanann was just desperate to save their marriage. This is when Chris says that he snapped. While straddling his pregnant wife, he put both of his hands around her neck and strangled her. He says now that he wonders if he knew what he was going to do before he strangled her, like maybe that's why he got on top of her in the first place. I think this is Chris's way of admitting what he did without admitting it. He said that it was like his mind had already put together a plan, and when he woke up that morning, he was going to do exactly what he did, and he had no control over it. He says that Shanann never fought back and never so much as screamed. Chris says that she just laid there praying 
while looking up at him as he strangled her for minutes. Excuse the sound of my heart shattering. He said that he was just in a rage and snapped. He says he knew she was dead when she stopped moving, but according to him, she didn't fight back. So what really happened here? Chris said that Shanann's eyes were bloodshot. This is actually pretty common. It's called subconjunctival hemorrhage. Some people get this when they get like a stomach bug or they're lifting heavy because of all that pressure, but it's super common in cases of strangulation. She legitimately stared into her murderer's eyes until he took the life out of her. And he slowly watched her as her eyes filled with blood and the life very slowly slipped out of her. Manual strangulation takes around five minutes to result in death, so imagine the effort he had to put into this. Try and pause this for a full five minutes just to see how genuinely long that is when you're just waiting. I guarantee you'll get tired of it after 30 seconds. Chris says this is when Bella walked into their room with her tiny little blankie and asked what was wrong with mommy. Remember, Bella had woken up twice in the middle of the night just to see if Shanann was home yet. Chris thinks that maybe the noise woke her up, but I'm not sure how if she didn't scream and there was no struggle. But again, I think we can all agree that that's just a part of his second confession that is not true. Better question, why would Bella think something's wrong with mommy if she's just laying there? Certainly, she's seen her mom sleeping motionless in her own bed before. What made this time any different? Chris says that he told Bella that mommy didn't feel good and that he says Bella just thought Shanann was sleeping, which again goes against everything that just came out of his mouth, but we already know that he's a liar. Next, he says he wraps Shanann up face down in the bedsheet. So he was strangling her around her waist, and then after she died, rolled her over until she was face down? Why would you move her? What would be the point of putting in that effort? That makes about as much sense as when Chris claimed to have taken his dead wife from Cece's room into his bed and covered her with a sheet. Both scenarios make about as much sense as walking upstairs to get to a basement. As I mentioned before, dead weight feels much heavier than the weight of someone in control of the center of their balance. So Chris naturally had trouble getting her down the stairs. Instead of carrying Shanann's body down the stairs, he had to drag her. Her feet clunked on each step as he pulled her down. Saddest part, Bella was right behind her dad, following him down the stairs as her mom's limp body wrapped in a sheet hit every stair in front of her. He says that he went back inside and Cece was getting out of bed. He thought that the sound of Shanann's feet hitting the stairs probably woke her up. Remember, they were super light sleepers. But again, I watched the video of Chris loading the truck and he didn't seem to go back inside after what people assume is him putting Shanann in the back seat. The shadows that look like they could be the girls walk out to him, stop at the back wheels, and then wait for him to pick them up and put them in the back seat. Want to know what Chris made sure he packed? His lunchbox. He grabbed his freaking lunchbox before he says he put the girls into the truck. I don't think he was nearly as distraught as he claims he was. He made sure that he had his lunch with him because hunger is a bitch. 
And remember those two black trash bags? Chris said he didn't want the girls seeing their mom like that, so he put one around the top of her head and one around her feet. But she was wrapped in a sheet, right? So why would he also need garbage bags? While in the back seat with Shanann's body on the floorboard beneath their feet, Bella asks again, what's wrong with mommy? And Chris told both of the girls that mommy was going to be fine. He said that they both brought a blanket and Cece brought a barking dog toy, but what about those missing dinosaurs that he specifically said were not in the girls' rooms anymore? Chris said he was nervous and shaking as he was driving to the oil site and that he didn't know what was going to happen, but this is the same guy who made sure not to forget his lunch and stopped at a gas station to buy a breakfast burrito right after killing and disposing of his entire family at the site that he's currently headed towards. So I find it hard to believe he's in as much shock as he's leading on. Now, Chris says that Bella complained that it smelled in his truck. I can only imagine that this is because when you die, you generally lose control of your bowels. And Shanann had. Because she'd not been dead long enough, I can't imagine that the smell was for any other reason. Chris gets to the oil field and pulls Shanann out of the truck and drags her until she's next to the place that he plans to dig her grave at. Bella and Cece ask what he's doing to their mommy, and Chris says that he honestly doesn't remember what he said to them. Once Chris had dragged his dead wife's body over to where he planned to bury her, he left her there and headed back to the truck. When he got there, he said he wrapped Cece's Yankees blanket around her head and put one hand over the blanket over her mouth and nose and strangled her with his other hand. He would have had to have been sitting behind her to do this or she would have had to have been sitting in his lap, using his body as a backboard for the pressure he's applying to his slowly suffocating daughter. Bella watched silently. Once Cece was dead, he immediately, without hesitation, walked her up the two stories of stairs to the top of the oil tank, opened the narrow hatch, and dropped her in feet first. He says that he had to manipulate her little body to get her to fit in through the hole. Chris then says that he didn't have to hit her into the tank or anything, but now I think he did. When he heard her body hit the oil below... He closed the hatch and walked back to the truck where Bella was, alone, watching everything his father had just done, the only surviving member of her family. When Chris got back to the truck, Bella asked what happened to Cece, and then Chris says that she asked if he was going to do the same thing to her as he had just done to his sister. Chris says that he doesn't remember if he said yes, so honestly, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he probably did. Chris then used the exact same Yankees blanket, wrapped it around Bella's head, and did the exact same thing to her that he had just done to Cece. Chris says that when he was approaching her with the blanket, she yelled, Daddy, no! And those were her last words. Bella fought for her life, thrashing around, trying to get out of her dad's grasp. He says that he heard her grunt as she tried to breathe through the pressure he was applying to her face. After Bella died, the last living person in his immediate family, he says he noticed a few injuries above her eye that she had gotten from her fight back against him. He picked her up 
and just like he did with Cece, took her up the two stories of stairs to the top of the other oil tank right beside the one her sister was dropped into, opened the hatch, and just like before, shoved Bella in feet first. Remember now, she was bigger than Cece, and naturally, Chris said it was harder to fit her through the hatch. Chris says that the girls' deaths were due to his anger towards Shanann being taken out against everyone in front of him that morning, but he didn't kill any of his co-workers, and he didn't kill the cashier at the gas station when he got a breakfast burrito. He only killed his wife and children. Let us not forget, Shanann is still wrapped up in a sheet beside where Chris plans to dig her grave. So Chris uses a rake to try and pull away some weeds because apparently you don't want weeds in your shallow grave. He then successfully dug a whopping 18-inch deep hole that he put Shanann's dead body in. Chris says he wasn't trying to separate everyone, that he just didn't know what to do. But Chris disposed of the girls first. He knew exactly where he was going to put them. With no hesitation, he walked directly to the hatches on top of those oil tanks. He had no intention of burying them, and knowing of the specific place where he intended to dispose of them, it sounds to me like he knew he was going to kill them too, at least as soon as they were driving to the site. Because remember, even though Shanann was killed first, she was disposed of last. There was construction going on in Chris and Shanann's neighborhood the day of the murders, so on his way home, he stopped by one of those construction dumpsters and threw away the Yankees blanket he had used to suffocate the girls and all the clothes he was wearing, you know, the ratty shirt and the old pair of boots, and then changed into some extra clothes he kept in his truck. Now, my immediate reaction was, this asshole packed a change of clothes in case his murderous rampage got too dirty, but... He works in an oil field, and I'm sure it's probably pretty normal to keep a change of clothes on hand in case of spills and whatnot. But can we talk about the obvious here? Did no one check the freaking dumpsters? If they had, they would have found blankets that belonged to the missing children with their DNA on it, which we'll get into later, along with an entire outfit worth of clothes belonging to the only remaining member of a soon-to-be five-person family. Chris said that he wanted to take a plea deal to avoid two to four years of trials with gruesome reminders and details of what he had done to his family. He doesn't regret taking the deal, but said that he legitimately didn't think he'd be spending the rest of his life in prison. Um, what? Chris admits that he never even considered the idea that Shanann had hurt the girls until the interrogators mentioned it in his polygraph interview. Told Jim. He says he still has no explanation as to why Shanann's phone and Apple Watch were found in the loft couch. It's suggested that he may have planted them there, but that would make no sense at all. If he wanted to make it seem like she left him, she certainly would have taken her phone with her. And he asked a few people about her Apple Watch, only for it to be found later under a pillow on that same couch. Chris says that he threw the marriage counseling book Hold Me Tight in the recycling to make it look like Shanann didn't think the marriage would work. But for real, worst lie ever. He knew he wouldn't need to read it, and nothing ever made him look more guilty than throwing away his unopened couples therapy book. Uh, except for maybe throwing away his bedsheets. Speaking of bedsheets, he said he threw away the sheet Shanann was on when she died because when she died, like many people do, she evacuated her bowels. But honestly, they mentioned stains on the sheets, but never mentioned fecal matter on them. 
Chris said he looked up the lyrics to the song Battery by Metallica because Kessinger had asked about it and says he didn't look it up going to or from the oil site. Sure, it is hard to read while you're driving, but this is bullshit. Chris had a freaking Metallica tattoo and had seen them live. He was a huge Metallica fan. He didn't text her any lyrics. There were not cards with the lyrics on them. This was Chris once again searching the internet for lyrics that matched his emotional state. And that day, it was rage. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Chris mentions offhand that he's always had a crazy imagination, but gives a really weird example as to what he means by this. He said that once when he was in school, he convinced a teacher that he had gone to Japan or China over summer break, and that the teacher believed him. He even went as far as to write an entire paper about his experiences on this trip that never happened, and says that his teacher believed every word of it. That sounds a lot more like he's a phenomenal liar and has been for quite some time, and he shared this as if it was impressive and he was proud of it. Chris said that when he was being interrogated the first time, he couldn't admit to what he had done because he didn't want to admit it to himself. He says that it was horrific and he knew how much the truth was going to hurt other people. So he kept it in and only told people Shanann had hurt the girls because the interrogators had mentioned it earlier. So, the big question is, do we believe him or not? I believe some of this. I believe that Shanann didn't take her makeup off, but I don't believe she got into bed at 2 a.m. She was shopping online at 2.30 a.m., so I can't imagine that she got home, got changed, kept her bra on, had sex, and had time to go shopping all before 2.30 a.m. when her card was declined. It also doesn't match up with the fact that a struggle was detected at the bottom of the stairs. According to Chris's story, none of what happened with Shanann happened downstairs. But I mean, according to him, nothing happened on that couch either. But something happened to the point where she lost her phone and her watch in the cracks of that couch. Chris packed his lunch and made sure to bring it. Chris got a breakfast burrito from a gas station after he left the site where he disposed of the murdered members of his family. He took a picture of flowers to send to his girlfriend as if nothing had happened. He killed the girls and put them in oil tanks before he ever buried Shanann. The girls weren't an afterthought. They were a plan, and if they both brought a blankie, why did he kill them both with the same one? 
And where are these dinosaur toys he so specifically pointed out were missing in his first confession? I think we're closer to the truth here, but I don't think we're there yet. I think Chris is still ashamed of a lot of what he did, and he should be, and is still struggling with admitting to himself what he did and why he did it. Interrogators seem to intend to go back and interview him from time to time, so maybe we'll get a little closer to the truth the next time around. I apologize for the terrible and soul-crushing details of today's episode, but as I've said before, it's a part of their story and their story matters. Next week, I'm going to go a little easier on you and dedicate an entire episode to the drama llama that was the relationship between Chris and Kessinger. And spoiler alert, it involves comparing condom expiration dates to figure out when they were purchased and when he might have had sex last. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. We love reading them, and my husband especially likes the intro compliments, so shout out to everyone who has tickled his little fancy in the past six weeks. Until next week, we out. (laughs) 